Hi, I'm Luke Walker and this is Inside Industry with IREO, the premier podcast about how WSU researchers fund their research privately, which is also known as industry. I have with me today Nick, Jennifer, and Steve, the team from the Honeybee Program at Washington State University. How are y'all doing? Good. Thanks for having us. Yeah, we're great. Mm-hmm. Yeah, doing great. Thanks. Yeah, so we, we have some more people than usually. I'm lucky to have with me three people today. Can all of you just go around and introduce yourselves and tell me just a little bit about your background? Sure. My name is Steve Shepard. I guess I've been the longest here at the program here. I got a PhD in entomology some years back and have been at WSU since uh, 1996, working on uh, honeybee genetics and mainly the breeding program and, and some of the other work we're doing. I'm Nick Nager. I'm a relatively new assistant professor here at WSU. I do a lot of molecular work. My background is in molecular genetics and molecular biology, uh, but I've also been working with honeybees uh, for over half my life. They're kind of an animal near and dear to my heart. And so uh, recently I've been using my molecular skills to study viruses in honeybees and uh, find other ways to understand how their immune system interacts with diseases and so on. My name is Jennifer Hahn. Similar to Nick, I am relatively new assistant professor here in the Department of Entomology. Um, my background is actually in, um, I have a PhD in plant biology where I did a lot of work on genomics and breeding. So I've kind of translated that to my research program here where I'm looking at developing fungal-based biological control agents by um, through different breeding methods to use them to control different arthropod pests. Wow, we have all kinds of backgrounds and expertise on this podcast today. That's that's awesome to hear. So, Steve, I'm going to start out with you. So, I know you used to be the head of the honeybee department. Could you talk about what some of your responsibilities were as the director and what was kind of involved with the program? No, I was actually uh, the chair of the entomology department. So, uh, Nick and Jen and another faculty member named Brandon Hopkins, you know, we would love to have a honeybee department. That would be great. But um, at WSU, we have an entomology department. And so um, I was I was a chair of that department from uh, for about eight and a half years. And, you know, you're the person that interacts with higher administration and, and along with a lot of help sort of takes care of some of the day-to-day sort of operations of the department. We, we have about 15 to 20 faculty members in there. They're not only in Pullman at the main campus, but also at some of our outlying research and extension centers. So it's, you know, it's, it's a bit of a, a group. You still continue to do your, your faculty chores, but uh, you have these uh, additional duties and responsibilities is what it's called. So it's usually a, a four-year stint, and then it can get doubled. And in, in my case, it was doubled and then a little bit more. Okay. And I know a big part of your work is studying how honeybees evolve. Could you or someone else um, from your team talk about what you've learned in your studies or what have you learned with studying how honeybees evolve? Yeah. So I, I started out in the laboratory of an evolutionary biologist who worked on flies. And so I've always been interested in the evolutionary relationships among honeybees. And the Apis mellifera, the honeybee we're talking about, is an old world insect that was brought here by European colonists. But in the old world, it exists in more than two dozen different subspecies, uh, sometimes called geographic races. And so in my work, uh, I've worked within Apis mellifera, and we've described 
a couple of new subspecies, some from Central Asia, one from the island of Malta. And then at a broader level, we've also looked at relationships within the genus Apis, which involves some other honeybees that that don't occur in the new world, you know, they occur mostly in Asia. And using molecular methods, like some of the things that Nick talked about, uh, we've, we've looked at the relationships among these and made hypotheses about, you know, their, uh, the age of divergence from, for some of these groups, it was a little different than what was known before. So those are the main sort of contributions in honeybee evolution that, that I've worked on. And how many bees would, does the honeybee team work with? Like how, like how many like colonies and I don't know if you know, maybe like a ballpark for bee numbers. I'm just kind of curious, like how many bees you work with, especially with that being such a big program here at WSU. In the Pullman area, we have uh, between 100 and 200 colonies at any given point in the year. Uh, typical bee operations uh, tend to expand midsummer and then contract a little bit where weak colonies are combined together into one strong one to survive the winter. But we typically have around 100 to 200. And uh, so we have to spread them out across multiple areas, uh, some close to campus and some uh, at say uh, an organic farm in Moscow nearby. So we spread our bees out so there's enough food for everybody. And then uh, additionally, we have the new pollinator and honeybee research facility uh, near Othello, Washington. And that gives us a, a lot of space to work with. We currently have another 100 to 200 there with the idea of growing that operation even larger. Uh, we do have the advantage that working with bees, bees do produce you know, they, they have value. They produce honey and pollination services. And so the Othello facility, we're going to treat those bees much like a commercial operation where they go through all of the rigors of commercial pollination and honey production. So we can study the, um, the difficult world that modern working bees are facing. Uh, the Pullman bees get a little more reserved for the breeding program that we run and uh, more specific research that we do on the Pullman campus. And I'm curious, where do you get these bees? Like, I, I can't imagine you're out in the wild, like with a net trying to catch them. Like, how do you get these bees? There are a couple different ways. Uh, we do maintain operations. And so we grow our own bees to a degree. Uh, when research demands means we need more bees than what we have, there are ways of buying what we call packages of bees. And this is basically a netted wooden box with two pounds of bees in it and a queen in the cage, a little bit of uh, food for them. But you can basically order these packages from commercial bee suppliers and install these bees into your own hives. So we can get them that way as well. Um, an interesting addition to that is uh, we have access to bee semen from around the world thanks to this uh, uh, germplasm importation and cryopreservation program that we have here where uh, Steve and then also Brandon Hopkins in the program have traveled around the world to find good bees from different areas. And then rather than risking diseases by bringing in live bees, what they do is they collect the semen from the bees, cryopreserve it, bring it to the U.S., and then we can inseminate queens with it to uh, bring in new genetics to the new world without any risk of disease importation. So uh, that's another way we don't get bees that way, but we get new genetic stock via this importation program. 
All right. And I know that the team has opened the Honey Bee and Pollinator Research Extension and Education Facility in Othello in recent years for uh, Washington State University. How did that come about and what do you do at the facility? Well, I'll take a little bit of, bit of that, Luke. Um, the, the way it came about was for um, starting, I don't know, uh, some years ago, five to seven years ago, there was an effort to... Uh, expand uh, our capacity at Washington State University for bee research. We, we were in a, we were sharing a building that had originally been used for raising uh, laboratory animals. It's a very interesting building with highly filtered clean air and no windows. So not a perfect place, uh, you know, to have your office. And we had been in that facility since about the year 2004. And, uh, so we began raising money. A lot of donations um, came and, and uh, we, we had an opportunity about uh, maybe two years ago now to uh, purchase this facility. It's not in Pullman, Washington, but it's a former uh, uh, corn breeding facility and uh, a really nice building you know, at a, a good price. And so the decision was made to expand our program out to this facility. So uh, we, I think it's been uh, more than a year that that we've we've had control of the building, but because of uh, you know the the COVID and things like that, we haven't uh, quite you know gotten it where we where we need to be as far as uh, you know, fixing up the infrastructure. Because there were, we moved our honey extracting plant and we're setting up a, a growth facility for these uh, mushrooms that Jennifer will talk about um, out here. Could you talk a little bit more about your bee breeding program? Sure, I'll I'll talk a little bit and then maybe let Nick or Jen continue. We have starting as Nick pointed out, we we were able to get a a permit that allowed us to to bring in additional germplasm. So starting in about 2000, we started um, selecting bees and breeding bees for the Pacific Northwest. So these were bees that could make it through our winters and you know were gentle and had certain characteristics that that any animal breeder would breed for. You know if you wanted bees, so you want bees that are productive, make it through the winter. They're not overly defensive. All these sorts of standard traits, and we called those WSU program. Bees in that those queens and those genetics were released through uh, uh, groups, you know, beekeeping associations in the states, uh, Oregon, Washington, Idaho, and um, lo you know local beekeeping operations, and then uh, starting in about 2008 or nine, we we got this permit that allowed us to go to the old world and collect genetics of some of the subspecies that had been brought into the United States, mostly in the 1800s. So in 1922, uh, the Honeybee Act was passed. It restricted further importation of live honeybees into the U.S. So the genetics of the commercial stocks and the bees that we had here in the U.S. were really descendants of bees that had been collected or, or sampled and brought to the U.S. before 1922. So we, we were able to go and get additional genetics from these original source populations and then using cryopreservation and instrumental insemination to get these genetics into the 
the honeybees here in the U.S., and then by producing breeder queens and providing them to queen producers. You know, the, the main production of queens is done by um, a number of specialized beekeeping operations that produce maybe tens of thousands of queens a year each, uh, some of them even more than that. And so by, by giving them the, the actual new genetics, you know, it it can quickly get disseminated into the population. So that's, we've been working more or less in partnership with several, with a number of queen producers, mainly in California, but some in the Eastern US. And that's where we are right now. Interesting. And um, I also know some of, some other projects that the Honeybee team has been working on is uh, projects that involve fungi and honeybees. Could you describe what these projects are and detail a little bit like what's been involved with them? Yeah, sure. Um, I can start. Yeah, cool. So there are two main projects that are dealing with fungi and honeybees. One of them is using a fungi that grows kind of like a mold, if you will, um, trying to visualize it. And we're using that to act as a biocontrol agent to control a varroa mite, which is one of the major pests of honeybees. The other project is using fungal extracts from mushrooms, if you will, from fruiting bodies and feeding them to bees to help boost their immune system and help with their nutrition. So I'm gonna talk a little bit more about the biocontrol project. So, um, so there is a nationwide survey that's done annually and the leading cause most often cited by beekeepers for colony death is actually varroa mites. So if you're not familiar with what a varroa mite is, if you can imagine you have, okay, this is not scientifically correct because they aren't blood sucking, but if you can imagine a blood sucking parasite living on your back at all times about the size of a dinner plate, this is what, you know, these poor little individuals have to deal with these little honeybees. And oftentimes if it's a bad infection, they can have several of these varroa mites on a single individual. So you can imagine really not good for the bees. These varroa mites, they rip little holes into their poor little honeybee bodies and they tear into them and using their little like scraping mouth parts, they feed on the insides of the bees, feed on the flesh, and they can reduce um, worker longevity and foraging. They're also a vector of some of the really bad honeybee viruses that can really affect honeybees, including things like deformed wing virus. And you can imagine, based on the name, what deformed wing virus can do to a honeybee. And if you can't fly, you're not much good as a bee. So anyway, varroa mites are really bad. Beekeepers, they have to treat for varroa mites. Um, it's one of those, there are studies showing that if you don't treat to deal with this pest, your hive will die within one, two years, um, depending on where you live in the country. So you need to deal with them. And currently what they have right now are a lot of different um, synthetic chemicals that they use, which have been effective in the past. However, the generation time of these varroa is quite fast. And so there's a lot of resistance to these chemicals. And so they're not as effective as they used to be. So what we've done is we've developed a fungal biocontrol agent to deal with these varroa It's really exciting. Um, what's really great about biocontrol agents in general is they're less prone to resistance, right? Because this is also a living organism. It can also evolve if the varroa evolves, right? So there's a back and forth, right? You've heard about the biological arms race, right? So 
that's one of the really great things about using a biological control agent. And so what we've done is we've developed this fungus called metarhizium. Um, and what's really great about metarhizium is it's a native fungus throughout the world. So you can find it in your yard. I dug up the soil in Koppel Gardens here in Pullman, which is a local community garden. And I was able to isolate this species from the ground. So it's really great as a biocontrol agent because it's native. We're not um, putting something foreign into our environment, if you will. And so um, it's got a lot of really good things going for it. And what we've done is we've bred it to be more virulent and more thermal tolerant so that it can last longer in the honeybee hive and be a lot more effective. Yeah, I would like to add that one of the exciting things about this project is that the uh, the previous existing pesticides that killed mites were not extremely safe for bees and they weren't extremely safe for humans either. So bees would live a little bit shorter, they could end up with reproductive defects or less foraging behavior because they were a little bit sick from these pesticides that beekeepers had to put in their hives because varroa is just so deadly you cannot get away with not treating it. So they kind of were forced to use these chemical miticides that were not very healthy for bees, but the lesser of two evils. Well, hopefully now we have a varroa treatment that is perfectly safe for bees. Uh, Jennifer and I collaborated on a project where we tested the effect of pesticides on bees in cages. We found that it did not affect bee lifespan. And in fact, there are a couple aspects of the bee immune system that seem slightly improved, as if uh, giving bees a function fungus that cannot infect them uh, can actually prime their immune system against other pathogens. Fascinating. I think it's interesting how these two very different things can help each other out. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And then uh, the other project was kind of another unexpected way that, you know, fungi and bees uh, can help each other out to a degree. And so this uh, other project uh, started when a collaborator of ours on the west side of the state, Paul Stamets, uh, was growing mushrooms uh, in his yard, and he noticed bees were foraging on the mushroom beds. And uh, so it was fairly clear bees were getting something from these mushrooms. And so we set up a collaboration to feed bees extracts of fungi to see what would happen. We end up focusing on mushroom mycelium, where they're actively digesting wood and producing a whole host of interesting compounds that can uh, aid in digestion and so on. Um, and we fed these extracts to bees. And uh, one of the first things we looked at was if these extracts had any effect on honeybee viruses. And in our first run, we were able to find that, yes, it seemed that these extracts did help bees lower their virus levels. Uh, in subsequent testing, we found that generally we see that the uh, lifespan of bees uh, when they're fed this treatment uh, is slightly extended. They tend to be uh, healthier in terms of viruses and gut parasites and uh, just kind of look healthier overall. Uh, but at this point, we don't really know what is in these fungal extracts that is good for bees. It could be something simple as uh, nutrition, that bees are getting vitamins and minerals and things like that from these extracts that are generally really good for them. Or there could be something more interesting going on where these fungi could produce, be producing various breakdown chemicals that help the bee microbiome, or they could uh, help the a very special part of the bee immune system called melanization, where it tries to smother an internal pathogen to death uh, with melanin compounds. So uh, we are investigating what is going on in the bee immune system as these uh, various nutritional compounds that they are fed seem to help them fight diseases and be healthier overall. Wow. 
And how has industry been helpful with your work? Have you had any companies or organizations that you've partnered with? I'll answer this just briefly, and you guys can follow up. Uh, we really could not have done most of that work without um, help from beekeepers. So I, I know when Nick and Jen, soon after they came, one of our first really large-scale experiments was with over 300 hives that belonged to uh, different commercial beekeepers down in California. And we were down there, you know, in the rain at night, uh, pouring um, these fungal extracts into these hives and, and sampling them and stuff. So they've been very supportive. You know, the, the beekeeping industry, you know, as a group through their organizations, like say the, you know, the California State Beekeepers Association or Washington State Beekeepers Association, they're, they're all uh, very concerned with varroa mites and with the fact that they're, you know, if you had asked 30 years ago beekeepers if what they thought about pesticides, beekeepers were some of the most anti-pesticide people around, as you might imagine, because their experience with pesticides was usually when a grower applied it improperly and wound up, you know, overspraying and killing their hives. So, but but now, as Jennifer pointed out, because of the of necessity, the beekeepers actually use pesticides in their own hives, and, and they don't, as a group, like it, of course. So any possible tools that they can have that could reduce using pesticides and also that has promised to you know control one of their biggest pests they're um, they they've really been helpful for us and many other researchers that that work on on varroa mites one one of the and just one last little thing is the, the fact that we're building up the program here in Othello to have you know maybe three to four hundred hives basically a small commercial operation is so that we can do these sorts of experiments and then have control of the colonies uh, year round. So that early work that, that Nick and Jen did where the beekeepers were helping us out, you know, as soon as the experiment was over, in this case, when the almonds finished blooming, you know, the beekeepers all went their separate ways all over the country. And that was the end of the experiment. So there's some benefit to having, being able to do longer term experiments where you can follow the colony year round. Yeah, I'd uh, just like to reiterate that, yeah, our beekeeping industry uh, collaborators have been absolutely fantastic. We have never really been limited resource-wise in that way. Uh, there have been many great collaborators that have just volunteered their hives to us uh, just with the trust that we will treat them well as we do experiments on them uh, before we, we return the hives to them. And uh, it's been really great not to have to worry about uh, resources and instead design the experiment that we want to do. Um, I should also mention that uh, in terms of the fungal extract work, Fungi Perfecti, Paul Stamets company uh, near Olympia, Washington, has been uh, really great at uh, you know collaborating with us. Uh, they grow and send us kind of what we want, you know, grow Ganoderma lucidum on this wood and make an extract and send it to us and they will do that. So we can uh, test the different formulations that uh, we think would be most effective in helping the bees. 
Uh, we've also uh, worked with their grow masters and so on, discussing certain aspects to make sure that as we move forward, trying to develop these different products to get into the hands of beekeepers, that these uh, methods and so on are um, workable within ind industrial settings to create these products at large scale and so on. Um, so, you know, it's uh, been nice to have industry collaborators to make sure that we maintain everything within a feasibility and cost effectiveness as we uh, hopefully develop products to help bees. And I can't talk too much on this because it hasn't been my personal collaboration, but Dr. Hopkins, one of the other researchers in the Honey Bee Program, he has several other industry collaborations that he's done looking at different um, Varroa treatments and different types of honeybee health mm -hmm. measures. Well, that's good to know. And I'm curious, what can individuals and non-researchers do to help preserve bee colonies? Um, my, one of my personal feelings is um, to plant good flowers and forage. Some people want to keep bees, but knowing anyone who wants to should know that it's not an easy part-time job. So if you really want to help bees, I think the best way to do it is to plant flowers and plants that they will enjoy and have food for. All right. And are there any programs that your department offers in case people were interested in beekeeping? So yeah, one of the uh, the things that we've done quite a bit in the past, almost every summer, we have a workshop on on beekeeping. You know, how, and uh, it'll have a lot of topics in it. So it's it's for beekeepers that are beginners or beekeepers that are more advanced. You know, they both benefit from that. And then we have specialized courses in queen breeding, and um, instrumental insemination. And this summer, we have a workshop plan where they'll, Brandon will also be uh, working with people and demonstrating cryopreservation, you know, the freezing of honeybee semen. That's one way that we've done it. I believe in 2022, we will have a joint meeting with the Washington State Beekeepers Association at their, at their convention, and we will you know, most likely have some workshop uh, things in association with them. Yeah, we have other collaborators at, uh, you know, parts of the Honey Bee program, the extended program, uh, including Sue Kobe, that does a lot of work with industry on honeybee insemination and teaches many, many classes on uh, how to do controlled breeding in a system where you have free-flying insects. Um, they actually do insemination under the microscope with uh, small syringes. Yeah, and we're really lucky to have her. She's internationally renowned. She, you know, gets calls from Europe and overseas asking for her expertise to come fly over there and demonstrate and show them these techniques. So we're, we're lucky to have her here in Washington State. Yep. And then uh, one final thing is if there are any undergraduates listening, we do teach a uh, honeybee biology class where we cover basic honeybee anatomy and physiology, pollination biology, and then uh, quite a bit on how to keep bees alive and do beekeeping. So um, if any undergrads are interested, we offer that class. And um, oh, yeah, and we are um, in the early stages of trying to reboot the uh, undergraduate beekeeping club on campus. The uh, graduate students that were running that graduated and moved on, uh, but we have a couple new students with some interest. So we're hoping to uh, revive that. So if there are WSU students that are interested in learning how to beekeep and uh, exchange notes on uh, you know, on how to do so, hopefully the beekeeping club will be coming around in the, new, in the near future again. All right. And uh, well, that's good to know. And I have one last question. 
How much does your team endorse slash enjoy the B movie? <laughs> uh, yes. so you're, you're talking the one where the main character is a male? Jerry Seinfeld. Yeah, Jerry Seinfeld. So I I I I can enjoy it for what it is. Um, I actually was fortunate enough to meet the director one time and have a, a bit of a discussion on the various you know accuracies and so on. And uh, he said what was unfortunate was a lot of times when they tried to get more accurate of how bees were uh, in terms of them dying when they sting or um, the weird mating behavior of how uh, baby bees are created, all the scenes with their drones and so on tended to be a little more than what they wanted in the kids movie. So in the end, the bees were very very human in a way that they're like, sorry, that's just the way it is. We were aware of the biology, but just kind of had to make that choice. I could never get around the fact that they chose to make, uh, I mean, I know Jerry Seinfeld was a big name, but uh, they shouldn't have been males. <laughs> uh, I, I couldn't get around that a little bit. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> All right. I had to know, you know, I know yeah. for the specialists themselves, how dare an animated movie not be accurate, right? I know. <laughs> Well, and I love that whole, when they tried to be accurate, they're like, that's too real. We can't add it. Uh -huh, yeah. <laughs> all right. Uh, well, um, thank you all so much for joining me today. It was awesome to hear about all the amazing work you're doing with the Honeybee program and all the research you're doing and your expert opinions on the Bee Movie. Um, seriously, thank you so much for joining me today. It was great to learn more about the work you're doing. Thank you for having us. It's been really fun to sit and chat. Yes. Yes, thank you very much. Well, this concludes our episode. I'm Luke, and this is Inside Industry with iReal. <laughs>